Well, let's jump into it. Does anybody have the catechism question? It's question 37. Would you please, Beth? All right, great. Thank you so much. Okay, so we've been working our way through the Ordo Salutis, the Order of Salvation. We've seen that the Order of Salvation, just by way of review again, is the application of our redemption to us. As we've seen before, Jesus accomplishes our redemption, doesn't potentially die to... I mean, doesn't die to potentially save us. He actually accomplishes our redemption. But that redemption has to be applied to us in due time because we were not around when, you know, when Jesus died on the cross. So at due time, the Spirit comes, reaches into our hearts, regenerates us so that we're able to respond to the call that we receive. And so regeneration, that effectual calling, We've seen that now that we're a new creation, we're able to respond with faith and repentance. We call that conversion. And then we see the work of the Spirit in justifying us, that is declaring us righteous, adopting us, making one of God's children, and then sanctifying us, the progressive work of the Holy Spirit, making us more and more like Christ. And now, finally, we come to this last uh, part of the order of salvation, so-called glorification, where everything comes to an end at our deaths. And what we want to do here is kind of unpack what the uh, catechism writers are saying. So they say that the the souls of believers are at their death made perfect in holiness. And we think of something like Hebrews 12, 23, that says that the spirits of righteous men are made perfect. So at that point, we are perfected. That process of sanctification that's been at work in us through our mortal lives at that moment are, are moved towards a uh, state of perf- uh, perfection. Uh, it also says that we do immediately pass into glory. Uh, you remember the thief on the cross? Uh, who's got that? Uh, you know what? We'll look at that up in just a moment. Luke twenty three forty three. Um, and then, of course, it talks about the fact that our bodies are still united to Christ. I want to take a look at what that means, because uh, a lot of folks uh, misunderstand that. And, of course, do those same bodies rest in their graves till the resurrection. So let's go ahead and, and uh, try to unpack all of this. What we're looking at here is what theologians like to call, and uh, I didn't leave myself with a whole lot of room, but what theologians like to call, um, let's use black, the intermediate state. And it's called intermediate For a very simple reason, because when we die, what happens afterwards is, in fact, a real change from the way we were or are now, but it's not the final state in which we're going to be. So if you, know, if you think of that moment when you are first born, right, where you come into the world at some point at zero, <laughs> right? And you live however many years until that day of your passing. That looks like a, uh, that's a huge gravestone, but you get the idea. But until that day, you know, this is our mortal life. This is what we're all experiencing right now. And what this is saying is that there is both this intermediate state here, and then there's a final state that occurs when Christ returns, okay? So 
When a person dies and we talk about his going to glory, they find themselves here, not here. And there seems to be quite a bit of confusion uh, nowadays as to this very thing. So let's go ahead and unpack it a little bit. And in order to unpack it, so we talk about the, you know, the very first line of the catechism, the souls of believers are at their death. We've got to talk about souls. And it talks about bodies being united. Let's talk about bodies. What it really leads us first to talk about is the nature of human beings. How were we when we were created? And it may sound like a uh, sort of an uh, elementary thing, but we want to start with that. And recognizing that when God created human beings, he created us uh, what we call dichotomous. Dichotomous just means of two parts. And those two parts are body and soul. It's become very common uh, in our culture uh, to, um, well, especially even, I hate to say it, amongst Christians, the ones who ought to not be thinking this way, but to think of the body as being evil, as being, uh, you know, imperfect, whereas the soul is the real you. Uh, People often think, you know, about that. You even see it in funerals where they, they say, well, that's not, you know, that's not Aunt Mabel. And they're looking at the coffin. Aunt Mabel's in heaven, you know, that kind of thing, which she is, and we want to take that up in just a moment. But our bodies were created by God in Genesis chapter 1. And what does he say when he sees us, body and soul? He says the creation is what? Very good. So our bodies are part of who we are. You, we can't even imagine life apart from our bodies. So the idea that this is the real me in deep inside and the body is just a shell, that actually comes from Plato, from a Greek pagan philosopher uh, who referred to the soul, uh, to the body as the prison house of the soul, and that being good was escaping that. Uh, by the way, in this short series that we're doing um, for our sermons where we're looking at the different cultural narratives of our uh, Western secular postmodern uh, culture in which we live, one of those we're going to look at is uh, that view of what the body is, but it's been flipped. We've left behind the, uh, the Platonic way, that's uh, not Platonic in terms of love, but the Plato way of thinking, and now it's the body's the only thing that's good, <laughs> because there is no soul, there is no spiritual, but uh, always a scripture puts everything back in balance and teaches us that we are created both bodies and soul to be a unity even if we have two parts, the two parts create that unity, and it's absolutely necessary. So what we describe as death is simply that moment where the soul and the body are separated the one from the other, and that is an unnatural thing. God uh, put that as the curse uh, upon mankind. It was never meant to be that way, so it's not at all anything that's uh, natural. And um, so we all know this, and uh, this is... Uh, did we all get these references, by the way? I'm wondering if I should erase this. So I have some room to draw a little bit. And uh, do I have erasers? I do. Okay. So I'm going to go ahead and get rid of these. If everybody's... Does that, somebody have this one? Does somebody have that one? Do I have somebody? If you have, just maybe raise your hand just so I can know I can erase it. Okay. Who's got Job 1926? Got it? Any... Takers on John 5.28. 1 Corinthians 15, that person's going to be doing a lot of reading. It's going to be tough. There we go. All right. Thank you. Now this, I wonder if this thing has a, a lock. It does. We're going to have to use it. 
But there's something interesting here then. So we've got our bodies, and we have our soul. At death, the body goes immediately to corruption, as it were, returns to the dust, and so on. And in that regard, the experience of the believer, that's too small probably, but the experience of the believer and the unbeliever are the same. If we look at a person who is a believer who's died and we look at a person who's an unbeliever who has died, their bodies will experience the exact same thing. However, at death, like we said, it is the separation of the body and soul. And when we die, our souls will either pass into glory, into heaven, it just really means, and we'll talk a little bit about what it means, but the presence of God in a, in a blessed way, or it goes into hell, which is, again, the presence of God, but you're experiencing him in his wrath. And so there is a distinct difference in the state of the soul for the believer and the unbeliever. And though we're not going to look it up now, if we were to look at... Uh, Luke 16, for example, the parable of, uh, Jesus tells the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, and very clear at death, they both immediately experience uh, either heaven or hell. And one is blessed, the other one is all the torments that come with that. So in essence, this is um, really all the intermediate state is about. At this point here, your body remains returns to dust, returns to corrupt, you know, incorruption returns to dust, and your soul passes either into heaven or into hell, depending on whether you trust it in Christ or not. That in and of itself is all the intermediate state is and is what the catechism question is at first just kind of laying out. There's some implications for that. There's some dangers. But before we do that, any questions about this so far? All clear? Yeah, okay. You guys had an extra hour of sleep, so I was expecting, you know. Now, what that does is it does lead us to think through some views that are pretty common that we want to go ahead and and, uh, talk about. Uh, These are views that I think ought to be rejected and ought not to be um, considered by uh, by us as being in any way valid. The first one is one that you hear um, maybe not as often. I don't think nowadays anybody, you know, when, when... Growing up in in 60s and 70s, and then, you know, even to the 80s, I I still think people ask questions like this. But today in our culture, nobody seems to ask any of these kind of questions anymore. So questions like soul sleep, that was something that I would hear a lot back in those days. Any any of you ever heard about that? Soul sleep? Did, Did I hear well, certainly they do, but I've heard plenty of, of evangelical Christians talk about it. So the idea of soul sleep um, is essentially that when you die and you have that separation of body and soul, yes, the body uh, goes to the grave, but the soul, as it were, enters into a state where there's absolutely no consciousness, um, basically um, just kind of checks out. And now, I want to be sure that you understand that what we're looking at in, in the catechism question speaks about this idea of, of, um, of the believer, in one sense, sleeping, but it doesn't mean soul sleep. Soul sleep means that um, uh, you, you enter into a state in which you're basically just out of it, completely, completely out of it, and you don't return, as it were, until the resurrection. 
And we reject that for a number of reasons. First of all, when the Scripture itself speaks about, uh, you know, those who sleep, and it's a metaphor, obviously, for death, why would it do that? Well, that's because there are several, um, shall we say, similarities between uh, a person who has died and a person who is sleeping. The first one is, uh, you know, absent uh, a very, very specific kind of trauma or something like that. You often see a person when they've died and they look like, in fact, they are just sleeping. So that's, you know, the first is the obvious just metaphor that, uh, that you can see when you look at them. But there's also some other things. And that is the person who has died is no longer conscious of what is going on here in the world. Those events no longer are things of which they are aware of. Just like when you are sleeping, you are not conscious of what is going on in the world outside of you know, your own head, as it were. Those events pass by and you're unaware of them. But that doesn't mean that you're not conscious at all, which I think is the, the real danger with the idea of so sleep. Just like when a person is dead, they are conscious of the very presence of the Lord or if they're in hell, uh, again, the very presence of the Lord in a very different way. But they are conscious of those things, just like a person who is sleeping is conscious, not of what's going on outside, but, you know, we have dreams and those sorts of things. So I think it's important to distinguish between the scriptures talk about using very metaphorical language, you know, those who sleep in the Lord, that a metaphor of sleep for death, and this other view of soul sleep uh, that claims that basically you check out and there's just darkness and there's just unconsciousness and the believer knows absolutely nothing. Uh, You don't get that view at all. Um, We're going to go back to it uh, probably again in just a moment, but who's got the Luke 23, 43 passage? You can read that. Okay, thank you. And that's the, Jesus talking to the, the thief on the cross. So there's the soul passing immediately into the very presence. Uh, who's got Revelation 14, 13? All right. So we have these passages that talk about immediately passing into the very glory of Christ and, uh, and enjoying the blessedness and the glory of being in his presence. So, you know, people always want to know what is that going to be like since we are, are completely unaware, or, or not aware, but it's, just, it's unfathomable to even think of an existence where we don't have bodies because everything that you do, even your thinking, because, you know, we tend to think that when we think, that's the real us inside our heads. But what lets you think? Your body, specifically um, your brain. Yeah, I, I saw you mouth that, you know, that word, your brain. I mean, God gave us our brains as the organ that lets us process worldly, as, and worldly not as in sinful, but worldly thoughts. Um, what does that mean when we just have souls? We, we won't be able to think even as we do now. So the whole idea is that it's, it's something that we don't really comprehend. Um, I think Sinclair Ferguson uh, took a stab at it, and I think it's about as good as we can get. Uh, the one thing you don't want to uh, say, uh, which you sometimes hear people saying at, at funerals, um, again, because we understand the immediate, intermediate state is not the final state. The final state is the resurrection. Jesus returns and our bodies are resurrected at that time. You'll sometimes hear at a funeral, and I've heard evangelical pastors say this. They'll say again, that's not Aunt Mabel. Don't cry for her because she's in heaven right now in her new body dancing with Jesus. You ever heard something like that? No. It's just absolutely clear in Scripture. 
your body's right there. And I, I want to talk a little bit more about that in a moment, but in regard to what we're uh, discussing here, it does mean that in, in, in that separation, part of you is there, and what does that mean? We're not 100% sure, but it, we're, pretty, we're not pretty sure. We absolutely know. It doesn't mean that you get a new body in heaven and leave this one behind. So it is just your soul. And uh, Sinclair Ferguson, I, as I was saying, has uh, compared it to a baby in the womb. And he's, he pointed out that it's just an analogy. And like all analogies, you look for the co- points of connection, but it's not meant to be exactly, you know, 100%. And the idea is that a baby in the womb does not have, again, knowledge of what's going on outside. But he is conscious, and he or she can feel and can experience, uh, you know, warmth and safety and security within uh, the womb of, of his mother, her mother, that kind of thing. And so the idea is that in some way, that's what it's going to be like. Without sense organs, you know, we're not going to be doing stuff. You know, everything that you do is because your body enables you to do it. So you're not going to be doing stuff in that regard. But like a baby in the womb, you will have real consciousness of the presence, the warmth, the safety, the protection, you know, the goodness of God in some way, just, again, analogous to a baby in the womb. And I think, and I think Sinclair is right, that beyond that, it would be complete speculation because we actually have no data, nothing that, which, that we could use to help to, uh, to explain that. Yeah, Tegan. Oh, um, that's a pretty good question. Um, that might get us <laughs> a little bit off track. Um, all throughout Scripture, uh, we see this, I, this idea that God graciously uh, remembers the good things that we do. And, and uh, you know, in a number of different places, like Ephesians 2.10 and so on, it tells us that we're created for good deeds. You know, we, we've, we've been so, uh, since the time of the Reformation, so strong in pointing out you're not saved by your works, that sometimes we have to go back and remind ourselves but we are saved for good works. Not saved from the, uh, we're, we're not saved by them, but we are saved for them so that we can begin to live according to the law. And at the very end, you know, as Jesus himself says, uh, all we should be able to hear is, uh, you know, you unprofitable servant, you've just done what you were required to do. And yet God graciously, even though he's the one who enables us through his spirit to do those good works, he still graciously will reward us for those. So that's all it's really saying there. Uh, it's just part of that general dynamic that we see um, really throughout the whole of the, uh, the Bible, but especially in the New Testament. Di- the idea that, yes, your deeds will follow you in the sense that um, doing them matters. And that's actually going to be something that we'll talk about in the sermon next week when we talk about moral choices and uh, what that means again in our culture. But good question. Okay, let me just press on and talk about some other things that once we grab a hold of what the intermediate state really is, we can say, well, it's not these other things. And one of those is the Roman Catholic uh, doctrine of purgatory, which um, has been around for a long time but is not a biblical doctrine. The idea behind it is, uh, again, in, in the Roman Catholic doctrine, even if they say that you are saved by grace, because they will say that they are. Oh, Mary Jo brought my jacket, which I left at home. Now I can finally get dressed in front of you all properly. Thank you. There, does that look better? Okay. Now we can try, that's right. In the Roman Catholic system, 
even though they will claim that you're saved by grace. Grace is the fact that Jesus comes alongside you and empowers you to do deeds that accrue merit, and that merit has to, you know, reach to the top. You have to be at 100% in order to be saved. Um, There are people whom they call the saints. The scripture refers to all believers as saints, but in the Roman Catholic system, saints are only those people who have indeed topped off 100% at their deaths and have all the merit they need so they can zoom straight to heaven. But the rest of those who are believers who might be, you know, down at 65% or 95% or, you know, some of us probably down at 30% or whatever it is, we've got to get, we've got to burn off what's left. And so purgatory is basically an, uh, a hell light. Uh, you go there and you suffer and you burn off the remaining amount of your sins. And, uh, you know, the whole Roman system is all about burning off your sins on this side. So, you know, you go and you confess your sins and so on. You, you know, we talked about it last week, in fact, during Reformation Sunday, the whole idea that each individual sin then has to be atoned for. And so the priest will tell you, well, you do, you know, 10 Hail Marys or do this or do that. And that's how you atone for it. And, you know, you try to get through all of those. So that's the whole system. Now, there's a lot of things that um, speak against this um, in the Bible. You know, the first is the uh, various passages that we've already seen that show how uh, immediately we pass into the presence uh, of the Lord. Oh, and I did forget to say one thing about purgatory. On top of that, you know, you, you can literally spend thousands or even millions of years according to their system of calculation, which I have no idea how, how they came up with that. And so uh, um, you, can, you can do masses, you can pray, you can do all sorts of things to reduce your, your loved person, your loved one's, you know, time in purgatory. That's what we saw last week on Reformation Sunday where they were selling indulgences. If you paid money, it would buy off. And even though they no longer do indulgences and the Roman Catholic Church was reformed in that regard, the idea still exists. And the idea of purgatory uh, is still something very much that you can go into a Roman church, you can light a candle, you can say prayers and all that. And supposedly that shaves off some time from, you know, uh, from Aunt Mabel uh, or whatever. So... Um, that is how that system works. But everything that we see in scriptures shows it's contrary. One is, uh, again, it's not just the super saints that immediately pass into glory, but all believers in Christ immediately pass into the presence. There's no uh, intermediate, intermediate state uh, that we have there. And so that's very clear in scripture. Uh, the other thing, and I think, and, and by the way, again, that maybe we shouldn't have looked at it. Uh, Luke 16, that parable again. Uh, uh, of uh, the rich man and Lazarus very clearly shows moving either into heaven or into hell. But ultimately, the, the real offensive part of purgatory, the part that makes it by far the worst, is that it undermines the sacrificial death of Jesus. And it removes um, um, his, his, you know, his uh, atoning work. Because the idea is that at the cross, he paid the price. At the cross, He's the one who was burned, you know, for our sins. And so the idea that we then have to do that again and still keep doing it essentially um, uh, goes against the whole idea of Scripture that Jesus is the one who alone suffered uh, the entire penalty for, for us, for his people. So uh, those are just a couple of the, the different views that I think are, are problematic today. Soul sleep, which I, uh, you know, hear mostly amongst evangelicals. Purgatory, obviously, we hear those amongst Roman Catholics. Okay, a few more things I want to say uh, from the time we have remaining, but any questions so far? Comments? None. Okay, you guys are very sleepy today. All right, that extra hour of sleep actually made you sleepier.
All right, the next thing I want to look at then is, and I've already started, uh, I got ahead of myself here, is talking about the importance of, of the body because it has become uh, so commonplace for Christians to talk about the soul as being the important thing, the only thing that matters. And we see the body as being outside of God's program of redemption, as it were, you know, almost extraneous. And as I said, you can see that with, uh, with these views that basically say, oh, Aunt Mabel's not there. Uh, you know, her body's in heaven, you know, the new body and that kind of thing. And at least that view recognizes that there will be a new body. It just gets the whole timing wrong and forgets that this body is, in fact, still very much united uh, uh, to Christ. So uh, who's got uh, Job 19.26? If you'll read that. Oh, uh, maybe read another verse beyond that then. All right, thank you. I should have written down that's both of those verses. Okay, so here's Job uh, anticipating his death, and he's speaking with absolute confidence that he is going to see the one who redeems him. He goes on to even use that word. Uh, but he's going to see God, but he's not going to just see him in their intermediate state, but he says, I'm going to see him with my own eyes. I'm going to see him in you know, this, this body. So he's recognizing that his body is going to die, uh, you know, even after it is destroyed uh, you know, and so on. And yet he has this, this um, unshakable uh, faith and, and belief that that same body will be resurrected. How about John 5, 28 and 29? Who's got that? All right. So there it makes it clear that, yes, the body sleeps body returns to dust for believer and unbeliever alike, but when Jesus returns, it's what we call the general resurrection. At his return, all the bodies will be raised, those who have, been, uh, who have trusted in Christ to uh, a new redeemed body, a body of glory. Those who did not trust in Christ will receive bodies um, that will actually, if, if, if anything, heighten their suffering in hell. Uh, we can't even begin to comprehend what that means. But whereas those who are in hell now suffer in spirit, when the general resurrection comes, they will suffer in body and spirit. So uh, that needs to be said soberly, but it does need to, be, um, need to be said. So the idea then is that at the general resurrection, these actual bodies, these various bodies, will be resurrected. And of course, that brings up all sorts of questions, the kinds I was expecting you guys to ask, but you know, you're not, so I'll ask them for you. But how can that be, you know, when somebody that, like, if, you know, take somebody like Abraham, who lived around 2000 BC, so, you know, we're already talking about 4,000 years. Uh, what are the chances that Abraham's bones are still even, you know, around, and they've, uh, they've come down into dust? What about the people in 9-11, you know, and then they were pulverized and that kind of stuff? Um, so, in one sense, we, we do want to say, look, it is this body which is going to be raised, now, we already know some things about that body, uh, not a whole lot, because uh, we only have one real example. I mean, you know, you see Jesus raising people from the dead like Lazarus, 
Uh, every person that Jesus or even the apostles or uh, Elijah and Elisha each uh, raised someone, every one of those persons died again. So that was not them being raised in what we would call our resurrection bodies. The only example we have of that is Jesus. Now, we know some things about him, right? The first thing is that they had trouble recognizing him until they kind of looked carefully. Now, you know, it's hard to, without having it all laid out, it's hard to understand what was it that was getting them. You know, you look at me as, I, as handsome as I am right now. Um, there are the effects of age. There are the effects of, you know, disease and illness and, and you know, wear and tear on all of us, right? Somehow that's not in Jesus. Now, you know, the man was in his early 30s. We don't know exactly. You know, people tend to say 33. That's probably, you know, in the, in the ballpark. Um, but have you ever seen, okay, some of you younger may not know, uh, pick, uh, remember this, but back in 1979, when there were, the, there were these things called magazines, and you would um, read them. They didn't just come on the internet. And there was one called National Geographic. And so it had on the cover, 1979, the Russians invaded Afghanistan. Yet again, after the British, and then we came in, and it goes on and on. And uh, there was this picture of a 16-year-old girl, Afghani girl, on the cover of National Geographic. And it's very striking, and she's just, it's just a headshot. And she's turning, and she's looking with these beautiful, yeah, beautiful bright blue eyes, which usually is not what you think of. Say again? Blue or, or, or gray, they were very light. And that, I think, was the arresting part of the picture. They went back and took a picture of her in her 30s. And uh, you've seen it, Rob, you're shaking your head. She's looking pretty banged up, you know, pretty beat up, pretty um, weathered, because she's, you know, tribal, somebody or another, you know, walking around the deserts of Afghanistan, that kind of thing. Uh, you know, it's, she's not hanging out in air-conditioned, you know, um, luxury in her fluffy slippers and, you know, oil of Olay or whatever else. I'm sorry, I, you know, I've got like one aftershave thing, and then Mary Jo has a counter of <laughs> emulsions and who knows what else, you know. So that's not the case with this young lady. So you've got to imagine that's probably what's going on back there. Jesus probably does not look like, you know, Jared, you're like 31, 32, right? 32. 31, okay. 34, you said. And, and you've done a lot of, you know, stuff outside, but, you know, I would imagine that these folks look much more weathered than we do. And, and you can just see that, you know, Martha and Mary, well, it's Mary, the first, Mary Magdalene, the first season, you know, they're, they're, and then they finally like, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, that little dimple is there or whatever, you know, it is about Jesus. And they say, it is him. So there's something that is still the same. It's, it's still Jesus and that body in Jesus, and yet it's so radically transformed that at first blush you don't pick up on it. Now, these bodies will not fly. They don't do supernatural things. I mean, they're, they're, they're bodies. That kind of thing. Now, you might say, wait a minute, Jesus pops up and pops into, uh, you know, they have closed doors. But that's a Jesus thing, not a resurrected body thing. Does that make sense? That's like Jesus walking on water, you know, so just so you understand. Okay, so that tells us something then, you know, about the nature of, uh, of that body, that um, it is that very body that can be raised. And yet, when you think about the fact that many bodies will be destroyed and so on. Just remember this, two things. Well, one is, this is the same God who created all things out of nothing. So can he take a pulverized body and bring it back? Yes, I mean, it's not, it's not a problem. 
But the other thing to think of is when we say it's this body that will be raised, I want to ask you the question, even right now, what is your body? If you're older than seven years of age, which everybody here is, you don't have technically the same body that you did when you started, right? Because the uh, medical profession says that, um, or medical science um, says that about every, you know, you're constantly regenerating your cells, you're sloughing off old cells, being replaced by new cells, and that after seven years, roughly every cell in your body has been replaced. And that just is a continual ongoing process. So in one sense, you know, uh, I think um, C.S. Lewis is the one who says that he recognizes that, you know, I can't remember if I got it right, but uh, that one of the cells in his, you know, uh, that molecule in my finger served somebody else's chin admirably, you know. And and it kind of makes sense. I mean, you think about it, you go and you have, you know, a great burger. What are you doing when you're eating a burger? You're eating the molecules of the body of of the cow, right? And what happens after you eat it? Kind of gets some of it you process, some of it gets eliminated, and it goes back and you know goes through the whole process from photosynthesis and it grows into plants that then becomes the lettuce that you put on your next burger. Right? And so you're really kind of recycling all these molecules and so on. And yet, even though your body is constantly recycling and using other molecules, other cells, it's still your body. You wouldn't sit there and say, Well, that's not me. Right? You're still you seven years as you go through that cycle, right? Most of us would would think that. So even if God grabs a whole new different set of molecules to use, it's still gonna be your body that he's reconstructing. Does that make sense? Yeah, I'm getting a few head nod, okay. A lot of your others are giving me the trout look. So, um, all right. Any questions about that so far? Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, the body itself is radically different, like we're saying with, with, with Jesus, in that sense that it's, yeah, without sin, without suffering, without uh, uh, any, anything that's uh, imperfect, there'll be a perfected body. With that, let's segue right into 1 Corinthians 15. Now that, that's a good question. Um, essentially, it's the question of, is cremation wrong? It's really what it comes down to, morally wrong. So I'll simply say this. We get that question fairly regularly. There's nothing that we can look at in Scripture that would say cremation is objectively wrong. I couldn't look at a, at, a, at a verse and say, you know, there, that says that it's okay or that says that it's wrong. It simply is not addressed. And I think that's important to say. Historically, Christians have not cremated uh, for the reason, especially you think about, you know, initially in the pagan world, it was very common to, to burn the bodies. And that's almost pretty, pretty common across the board. I mean, doesn't mean that there weren't burials. There's tons of burials of people who were non-Christian. But, uh, you know, think, think about the Viking funeral pyres and that kind of stuff. Think about, um, you know, Romans who also burned bodies. Think of, you know, Anakin Skywalker. Okay, that's a separate. That was, yeah, a long, long time ago, right? Uh, so it was pre-Christian in a galaxy far, far away. But the idea of, of burning bodies was very common, and the reasoning was the thinking of Plato, the body doesn't matter. The body is of no importance. The person has died. Their important part has gone off to the Elysian fields uh, or gone off to Valhalla or, you know, wherever. And so we can just get rid of the body. The body is unimportant. Christians 
in reaction to that in their culture, which was the mainstream thinking of their culture, buried their dead in a way that showed respect and so on. In fact, like everything else, you know, in fact, we're talking about it during this, this uh, short series, uh, all these things that our culture values today, the fact that people today pay respect to the dead and so on, did not exist before, at least not in the ways that it exists now. Uh, kings and important people and nobles were accorded respect because the idea was that they came to the afterlife or whatever, they needed all these different things or, or because they were important in themselves. But the average person was not afforded those kind of things. It's only when Christianity came on the scene and in, in many ways uh, uh, restored to the human race, right, thinking about a lot of these different things. Uh, so the idea was that we would take a body and we would show it respect because that body was the one that was going to be resurrected. So when I get asked that question today, I usually will say that is the history of Christianity. Now, by the same token, um, like for example, you know, here we were getting ready to go to Hawaii. Um, in, in my plans, the way it's laid out, since I'm a veteran, uh, I'm going to, uh, Lord willing, be buried in a, in a, uh, a veteran cemetery because you know, it's free and they do a lot of things and whatever, so that Mary Jo doesn't have to worry about those kind of stuff, those things and whatever. So I've already made plans for that. Most veteran cemetery, like the one that's here in Dallas-Fort Worth area, you know, you can choose to be cremated, but you can also be buried. But if uh, in Hawaii, that would have not have been the option if I had died there. Um, they're so short on space that everybody has to be cremated. So there are stipulations like that. Sometimes there's issues of cost. Personally, I would never go to somebody and say, you must not cremate, you must bury, and I don't care if you have the money, you know, get into, because by the way, the funeral is the third most expensive thing you'll ever buy in your life. Uh, it just costs a whole lot of money, Mike. Right, that, that's why I say there's no mention in Scripture, and so that's why we cannot, yeah, yeah, we would have found it mentioned, but that's why I'm saying it's completely silent on the issue. So that's why I can never go to somebody and say, you must I do sometimes say, you know, if you have a choice, I do think that the symbolism is still there, and it still kind of shows the world that we care about that body. And today, even people who are cremated, we still do the funerals and everything with the body there in most cases uh, to, again, highlight the importance of that person. So I don't know if that helps to answer, um, but you're right. There are going to be some people who say, oh, John, you're so off. You should have said cremation is, is just wrong. And again, it's I can't point to a chapter or verse uh, that says that. I, I still personally think it's, it speaks to our culture, and, uh, and if we're able to do it, uh, to, to be buried outside of cremation and we can afford to do it, I think it sends a powerful message. Um, but I leave that to the, uh, uh, to the conscience and to the checkbook you know, of, each, of each person and the things that they have to deal with. So, all right, who's got that 1 Corinthians 15 passage? Because that is the one, okay, you got that, Jared, that we want to look at. Uh, read for me. Let's see, where do we want to start? There's a lot here. Uh, tell you what, just start reading at the beginning, and I'll just tell you when to stop. Is that all right? Okay, let me, let me hold off there. So he's saying that this is the important thing to recognize, and he lists the whole idea of the, you know, the life, death, resurrection of Jesus and how people saw the resurrection. And it's absolutely clear, and the, the point he's trying to make, and he even uses that language, those who have fallen asleep that we're referring to later, the point he's going to get at is dealing with some people who are saying, well, maybe there's no resurrection to come. So uh, perhaps you can jump to verse, um, 
Well, let's, um, it'd be fascinating. We don't have the time. Let's, let's skip to 12 and through 19, which is where he says, well, if they're not raised from the dead, we're in serious trouble. Let's just assume that's true and we all know it. Uh, jump to verse 20, if you will, and um, that's where it talks about our resurrection body. Okay, well, let me ask you to hold off there. So he's just going to go on about some other things. So that's the order. Jesus has already been raised first, sort of the, as he calls it, the first fruits. Then we'll be raised in the resurrection. Jump to verse 35, and this is pretty much where we need to be at. Okay, let, let's hold off there as well. Thank you so much. Um, I mean, the passage just covers a lot of ground. But what it's trying to show in the end is that it is a real body. It is going to be of a different nature and yet still be that same body. One is the spiritual, one is the, the, the natural. And by the spiritual does not mean that it is not material. And I know that kind of throws us the way Paul is using the word spiritual here. Very clearly it was a material body. Uh, when Jesus was raised from the dead, they were like, you know, is that really you? Is it not? He goes, hey, come and touch, feel, and all that. He goes ahead, go has in John 21, for example, and he has breakfast with the disciples and shows it is, in fact, a material body. We do and will eat and, you know, that kind of things with those bodies. Paul's here using the spiritual in the sense of making the contrast, the bodies of this world and the bodies of the world to come and that kind of thing. So beyond that, you know, we can begin to get into speculation. We don't know a whole lot. Um, so I'm going to just end what we're doing uh, here uh, there's at the very end of this passage, and verse and uh, um, the 54, 55, where he says, "Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ." The last thing to just discuss before we break here uh, is the fact that you know we often get the question, if in fact. You know, we are united to Christ if, in fact, you know, we're his. Why, then, uh, don't we just zoom directly into heaven, uh, you know, when we're saved? Why do we have to go through this process where, you know, we're living this life, then we die, intermediate state, and all that? And it's not a bad question. And we don't get a direct answer in Scripture, but I think it's fairly straightforward that we can put the pieces together. And the pieces go together something like this. In one sense, as Ephesians 2 tells us, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. We were already dead. So the idea that, that this is really the beginning of death is not true. In reality, we were born spiritually dead. Uh, what happens at that point when we tend to talk about dying is that the process of death is completed. But it already started when we were born. And the fact that um, the Spirit makes us alive, right? That same passage, Ephesians chapter 2, then in verse 4 says, But God, because he is rich in mercy, made us alive together with Christ. So this idea is we are spiritually made alive. Again, we're dichotomous. So the, the soul is, was spiritually dead and is not made alive, but the body is not. The body awaits its redemptive life for the return of Christ. And the question then might be, well, then why is that the case? Well, the answer is simple. If every believer immediately became a believer and was zoomed up until heaven, there would be nobody around to speak the gospel to other folks. So God continues with this plan in place that enables his kingdom to build. You know, Peter talks about, uh, and it's in Second Peter, um, 
I got I have to I'm just this one I didn't write down, so I can't remember exactly where. But he talks about, you know, the fact that it's God's desire for everyone, you know, that that's to come to Him. He that He's allowed a certain amount of time because He's saying He's talking about. Um, uh, some are saying that He's slow in His coming, and He's not slow. But the reason He does that is so that more people can come in. You know, if the apostles and those, you know, and Mary and Martha and Lazarus and all those folks who had seen Jesus were all zoomed immediately into heaven just because they believed, there would have been nobody around to speak to the next generations. So actually, it's God's kindness. He uses this system to enable us to become believers. Then we, quote unquote, pay the price of being in these imperfect bodies, even, even after we've become believers and we long for our heavenly home. But he keeps us around so that we might serve him and serving others with the gospel. Does that make sense? Okay, well, we are past our times, 1010. Uh, Matt, go ahead. We got, yeah, and the answer is yes. Yeah, the answer is yes. But the purpose of, of, you know, being salt and light and maintaining it, you know, we talk about common grace that's actually given to all and, and the restraining effects of the gospel uh, is simply so that the gospel can continue. You know, borrowing Shakespeare's phrase, you know, the whole world is a stage, and redemptive history is playing out on that stage. So, yes, we play, and Jesus uses this language again and again, it's this leavening effect, and he talks about the kingdom is like leaven in bread, and it, you know, and it kind of is being worked at. We're the ones who are working the dough, and it's spreading out. So, yes, we have that effect, and it costs us, because it costs us, we sit there and we say, oh, I wish I could just, you know, zoom straight to the end, and be in my perfect body, and then I'll look like Brad Pitt and, you know, and everything else. But in the meantime, I've got to look like this. And that's the price I pay for the sake of Jesus, all the things we know we do. So, um, but I, obviously I'm, I'm playing around with that, but there is real suffering and real hurt. Um, we think of our brothers and sisters who are, who are really paying a price, being persecuted and so on. Uh, folks are, you know, if you haven't heard, you know, we're so focused on certain parts of the world I have many times have brought up Nigeria where increasingly, you know, Christians are being slaughtered and it seems like the press, the world press pays no attention, uh, that kind of thing. But even for those of us who are fortunate not to live in those war zones or those kind of places, just the fact that we live in a world of disease and heartbreak and, and you know, just all the things of everyday life, even here in Flower Mound, all those things are, in fact, when Jesus, when Paul talks about that we make up for the sufferings of Jesus, that's what he meant, that we're living out those, those things, ultimately for the sake of the gospel. And that should push us to think, you know, why do we live our lives? What motivates us? What gets me up in the morning? Uh, that kind of thing. So, any other questions? There was way too much stuff, the intermediate state, to fit into one class, but okay, very last thing. Yes, because this one, uh, this question was just dealing with what happens right here, glorification, you know, at the intermediate state, and um, there will be, um, um, hang on, close my notes, I think it's the very next question. Very next question, what benefits do believers receive from Christ at the resurrection? So we'll get a little bit more into that, and then you can ask whether there are sewers in heaven and all those other kind of questions that people want to know. So that's right. All right, good. Let's go ahead and close with, uh, with prayer. Father in heaven, uh, thank you that even though you don't give us tons and tons of details, what we do know for sure is that uh, you have given us what we do not deserve and that you will continue to bless us beyond uh, what, we, uh, what we deserve. And we thank you that we do know 
that for us, death uh, no longer carries its sting. It has been removed because we have already been given new life, even right now, that new life in Christ. As uh, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he is, not will be, but he is a new creation. And we thank you, Father, for that. Uh, we do still uh, often have a lot of questions and perhaps even apprehension regarding the, days, uh, the day of our deaths. But we pray, Lord, that the things that we see in Scripture would assuage those things and remind us that indeed because, uh, as Paul says, the sting of death is sin and that sin has been paid for and removed, then help us to be able to see sin as no longer anything more than just a transition. Uh, the first step, but the uh, beginning of that transition to a perfect resurrected body. We thank you for the grace that you have shown us in Christ. Help us to think about those things even now as we go to worship. May it give us uh, the fuel, the ammo to be able to, uh, to worship you in spirit and in truth. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.